0: Father, we bow before you because you are holy. You told us in your word, if your people who are called by your name would humble themselves, you'd heal the land. Lord, our, na- our land needs healing. This world needs healing. Many hearts need healing. Many bodies need healing. Many, more importantly, many souls need healing. The saving grace of Jesus. And Lord, we're coming not in any kind of righteousness of our own, but by your grace. And even those of us who know you as Lord and Savior, Lord, we ask that you'd wash us, purify us. Lord, just drench us in your grace. We've been saved by grace, but Lord, we need your grace daily. We need your mercies daily. We've been praying a long time for revival, but Lord, you've been praying it over us longer than we've been praying it and desiring it. Jesus, you and you alone have opened our eyes, and you can open the eyes of our political leaders, are, business leaders, our medical leaders, our education leaders. Lord, we need a revival in every corner of the nation, every corner of the globe, that arrogance and idolatry and pride and murder and violence and sexual sins and uh, addictions and all these things, Lord, they'd be left at the foot of the cross, that men would turn from self-worship to the worship of the true and living God in the person of Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world. Lord, we ask for a revival and outpouring in this church, Lord, that all of your saints would become spirit-filled and anointed disciples. But not just here. The churches down the street, around this city. I think of all the pastors that I know in this city that love you. Lord, I pray the same anointing on their congregations this morning and around the world we ask for a a holy ghost revival that many fish will come into the net and then we would want to be fed by you the good shepherd we ask for this work not only here but everywhere in the world we pray also for our persecuted brothers and sisters lord deliver them even in the midst of these things use a pandemic to open up prison doors We just humbly ask for the work of your spirit here this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you have a Bible with you, if you don't have a Bible, you probably have a phone or an iPad or something, and so you can find an online Bible. Bible Gateway is a good one. If you're visiting and say, hey, I don't even own a Bible, you can uh, go online and look up these texts. I'm going to have you turn to four places this morning. Now, I'm going to have a lot of scripture. We're not going to go through them all this morning, but some of them are going to be on the screen. These are not. We're going to read these together. Um, Four passages. You know, the Bible refers to the fourfold witness of the gospel, the fourfold witness. And you think about a chair, if it's going to be sturdy, has four four legs to the chair. And so we're going to look at four passages that relate to this message this morning, the Passover mission of Jesus. Um, I'm excited. He sent me on a mission this morning to tell the mission of Jesus. I don't have to do anything except retell it. My mission is to tell the mission. Your mission is to tell the mission. You don't have to kind of add to it. Matter of fact, don't add to it. That just gets in the way. But we're going to look at what the Scriptures have to say here. Isaiah 53 is the first passage. If you can turn there, you've got ten fingers, so you should be able to hold four spots. They're just short passages. Isaiah 53 is the first place I'm going to ask you to turn to. The next one... Is John chapter 1, Isaiah 53, then John chapter 1. First Corinthians chapter 5. You'll be a Bible student very soon here. First Corinthians 5. And then lastly, First Peter chapter one. First Peter chapter one. All right, so those are your five spots. Sorry, uh did, One second on 1 Corinthians here. Do I have the wrong passage here? Okay, so turn with me to Isaiah 53. We'll start there. Isaiah 53. We'll do three passages this morning. How about that? Isaiah 53, verse 7. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. Turn with me now to John chapter 1. John chapter one, starting verse 29, actually only, just, only verse 29. The next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, "Behold, the Lamb of God takes away the sin of the world." And then turn with me to 1 Peter. First 1 Peter 1:19. Next, I'll start with verse 18. Let's read it in context, but verse 19 is the the focal point here in 1 Peter. Knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by by the tradition of your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish or without spot. He indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you. In the passage from Corinthians, I'm not going to turn to it, but Paul speaks of the Passover lamb. Uh, I don't know if I jotted the wrong one down, but uh, regardless, you can look it up. Uh, those four passages, Paul speaks of the Passover lamb. Uh, Peter speaks here of a spotless lamb. John pointed to the lamb, and Isaiah said, he's led as a lamb to the slaughter." All four writers, all four witnesses, all pointing to the same Lamb of Jesus. Let's pray, and let's get into this study this morning. Father, we just bow before you. We are so grateful you sent the Lamb of God, your own Son. We pray, Lord, that this study, uh, which is given by a flawed servant, but a flawless message, because Jesus, the message, the mission that I'm about to explain is your message, your mission in your scriptures, Lord. And not only is it settled now, but it's settled forever, for all eternity in heaven. And, Lord, this message, this mission of Jesus, Lord, is the only reason that I'm standing here saved by your grace and the only reason that any of us are born again, because you came. And as we sang earlier, it is finished. Lord, we're thankful that you came and you completed this mission. Lord, we pray now that you would anoint this time. Lord, that, that I would be removed once again from the equation that people, men, women, boys, girls, would hear from you and you alone. That you would be glorified. That you would speak through your own word. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So, the past three weeks... We looked at the words and instructions of Jesus in light of this COVID-19 global pandemic and how we can, in the midst of it all, have a calm spirit. That's what we looked at three weeks ago. How we can be renewed in grace and even grow in new ways as we learn to, as we looked at last week, abide in Christ. No matter the situation surrounding us, and there's a lot of things surrounding us right now this week, and then next week, we want to take a step back and look at the most pivotal week in the history of the world. It wasn't the week that all the governments were shut down. No, no. We're looking back at the most pivotal week in the history of the world. We've, of course, been looking to Jesus all along for His help and strength. But I'd like for us to focus today, and then again next Sunday, and apply even a more resolute attention to focusing on Jesus, and not this pandemic all around us. At least in these two services, and in doing so, we're not ignoring the crisis and the danger that it's in the world. Rather, we're focusing squarely on the only. Permanent solution to everything in the world. The only permanent solution. Fact is, I hope you're listening at home. Fact is, if Jesus had not come to Jerusalem and completed all the Father set before him, we could have absolutely zero hope for the coronavirus and any other form of illness or calamity that can easily take our lives. Whether it was the Titanic or the bubonic plague, if Jesus doesn't come, there's no hope for anything. Everything would be hopeless. The Passover mission of Jesus was infinitely greater than finding a vaccine for COVID-19. Infinitely greater. Though, that would certainly be a blessing. We'd all, we'd be just fine. We say, Lord, thank you. Such a cure comes. But a vaccine has no impact on eternity. No impact on eternity. The Passover mission of Jesus addressed sin and death. All forms of both, and there's a lot of forms of sin, there's a lot of forms of death. Two perpetual plagues that harm more than the body. You see, the soul, the soul has the greater need and needs a divine rescue. And only Jesus had and has the ability to rescue the souls of men. The Passover mission of Jesus was the fulfillment of his 33-year mission and his three-year public ministry. The entire mission was a life and death mission, the whole mission, in exchange of his perfect life for our justly deserved death. And as Jesus entered Jerusalem for the final Passover of his earthly life, he did so as the Passover lamb that Israel as a nation desperately needed But the whole world needed. And so what I'd like to do this morning is to take us on a walk. You're going to be a little bit part student, part just sitting in a a message. But take us on a walk, and from the time we have this morning, more like a drive-through, if you will, because of the time we have, limited time. But we're going to go back 2,000 years and we'll walk briefly through this Passover week. I'm not focusing on the days, but I am focusing on the focal points and the sequence, if you will, of things that Jesus addressed, did, said, spoke to. But we'll go through this Passover week. And if you're visiting, if you don't know the scriptures, I I hope God really opens your eyes to things you've never heard before, but God has always been shouting it from the page of Scripture for the last 2,000 years. And that specific week, we now refer to now as the Passion Week. You might have heard that term. It's better said the Passover week because it was centered around the Passover. A week that brought salvation to millions upon millions because of this week. And we'll look at seven scriptural observations this morning of this Passover mission, seven scenes, one powerful week that reveal definitively who Jesus is as the Lamb of God, as the Passover Lamb, as the Son of God, as the Priest of God, as the Wonderful Counselor, as our Salvation as the coming king. Just to name a few, we can see these glimpses of him in just this one week. In each of these seven scenes, we'll walk through the truths revealed in the Gospels, taking us all the way to the cross, which comes near the end of the week. Jesus' destination and love for the whole world was always the cross. From the day he was born in Bethlehem Put in that little wooden manger, or whether it's stone or wood, we don't know. But put in that manger, his destination was the cross. And for each of these seven observations, I'll have some scriptural references. They'll be up on the screen. I won't have time to go through all of them. But they're there for you to see that they're right in the page of Scripture. God hasn't hidden this information. It's there for all of us to see clearly understand it and believe it now cover them again as reference points i also have some pictures that are all from jerusalem except for one but all of them from jerusalem except for the very last one and these pictures of jerusalem are set in today's it's what jerusalem looks like right now in 2020 so we'll kind of walk through jerusalem together as it looks now but same place, looked a little different 2,000 years ago, but I really want you to get a feel for where Jesus came, exactly what he came, said, and did. One last thing before we start, uh, get to the starting point of this, uh, walk through the week, if you will. Jesus' entrance at the onset of Passover that week was into Jerusalem to a city that would swell, as Josephus writes, well over a million people, based on the number of animal sacrifices and things like that. Uh, This week, people came from all over the world, the Jewish people that were coming to be pilgrims and celebrate the Passover. Jesus enters that week along with Jewish pilgrims from all over the known world, the Middle East, Europe, Africa, Jerusalem sits at the center of three continents that come together there. But for all of these Jews that were coming, it was a requirement of the law that was given to who? Moses. Moses was the first one. God gave the Passover feast and the requirement in the law to keep that feast every single year. And Luke's gospel tells us that Jesus' parents, and of course, Jesus only had earthly parents, God was his father. Mary was a virgin, but he had earthly parents that was entrusted in his early years. And G- Luke's gospel tells us that Jesus' parents went to the Passover every year, as was the law prescribed. In fact, it was the Passover week when Jesus was 12 that they lost Jesus. Remember that? That was the Passover week. And by the way, the re- one of the reasons I think that, that uh, they couldn't find Jesus is God was showing uh, to everyone to understand that even the parents of Jesus had to find Jesus personally. One of the reasons why, because when they found him, he was in the temple teaching the rabbis and the priests at the age of 12. And they were like, uh, we, they had to find the Savior just like you and I had to find the Savior. So I, re- I really believe just that's my own take on it, that I believe one of the reasons that they kind of temporarily lost him is they had to find him. And each of us have to find the Lord. We have to come to him. But when they found him, he was conversing there at that Passover season. He was conversing with the priests and scholars, and they marveled at his wisdom. All that was centered around the same Passover season. But the Passover was always understood by the Jewish pilgrims as a celebration of life from God in the face of certain death. And the shed blood of a spotless lamb was always central, critical to the feast. You had to have the shed blood of a spotless lamb. That was, was given to Moses at the initial Passover, some 1,500 years earlier, 1,470 years uh, thereabouts to be exact. The per- first Passover took place in where? Egypt, not Jerusalem. The first Passover took place in Egypt when the last of the 10 plagues that God had poured out on a rebellious, arrogant Pharaoh who would not let his people go. When the last plague was poured out, the plague was that God said, I will come around midnight and kill the firstborn of every man or beast because of a refusal to relent and repent. God told Moses, I'm going to come around midnight. I'll strike the firstborn from Pharaoh to the lowest slave. Man, animals, didn't matter. And the only protection that the tribes of Israel had, and the only protection, frankly, even the Egyptian people could have done this. I believe probably some did. We'll probably get to heaven and say, wow, you were at the first Passover? Yeah, we were an Egyptian family that we believed and we applied the blood, because this is what they had to do. Sacrifice the lamp and apply the blood to the doorpost, to the top and the sides, which makes what? A cross that drips down. That was the initial Passover. And the angel or the Lord passed over anyone who had the blood. But if you didn't have the blood, there was a wailing and a death. And isn't it interesting here in this um, pandemic season, here we are on the Passover, and the world needs a Passover. We need God to protect each home from this virus. But the bigger protection is from eternity in hell and death. But the original Passover, the escape from Egypt that came after that, because right after that they were released, that remained the understanding and the remembrance of Passover all the way until Jesus enters Jerusalem 2,000 years ago on what we call Palm Sunday. So let's take a look now at the entrance. We're going to walk through this and understand what took place during that week. We call his entrance the triumphant Entrance. As Jesus came into the city, he was traveling down the Mount of Olives, and this is the Mount of Olives. I actually took this picture from uh, the south end of the south stairs uh, of what the Temple Mount is. I took this picture angling back. That's the Mount of Olives. You can see right there, you see all those buses uh, on the side of it. All of that white you see are the tombstones uh, that are there today. Um, But the Mount of Olives faces back to the city of Jerusalem. You have the little Kidron Valley in between. But as Jesus came into the city traveling down the Mount of Olives, where today that paved road where you see the buses has been uh, what used to be dirt and sandals and livestock coming down it, now you've got buses coming down. And Jesus, his, his fame and his reputation had grown. Nothing that he sought. He didn't come. He came of no reputation, but his fame had gone out. He had healed thousands. He had fed thousands. He had cast out many demons. The demons understood who he was. A lot of people didn't, but he cast many demons out. He had recently raised Lazarus from the dead. Just prior to, uh, just a short time before coming to Jerusalem for this last Passover, in fact, that was the final straw of the religious leaders plotting his death because he was actually able to raise people from the dead. They said he has to die. But as the Passover was about to commence, there was this buzz among the people, mostly the common people—not all, but mostly the common people—the not so connected, the not well connected they were convinced that Jesus was the Messiah, the Christ, the heir to David. Of course, he was of the bloodline of David, which which had to fulfill that part of the prophecy. But as Zechariah had prophesied, Jesus would not arrive on a horse or a stallion like a conquering king, a Roman conquering king, would come in on a horse. No, he would come humbly on a colt, on the foal of a donkey, Yet the people, they greeted Jesus, and again, I'll be putting these scriptures up as we go through. I'm not going to cover them all, but they greeted Jesus as royalty. And indeed, he was royalty. Uh, but within a, week, within a week, many would cry out for his execution. They said the next day, as he came in, came to the feast. And they heard Jesus was uh, coming to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and they waved them, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. And that says, as it is written, because that's what Zechariah had wrote. But who could have thought that within a week, they go from worshiping him to crucify him. Crucify him. We don't want Barabbas. Or we do want Barabbas, actually. Give us Barabbas. Crucify him. Within a week. Many of those same voices would turn. So we have his entrance. Let's look at his inspections. I'll define what each of these mean. Again, they were all part of that week. You're looking uh, at what is the eastern gate. It was also called the gate beautiful. The original gate would have been below this because the walls have been built on top of walls. So the original eastern gate would have been lower uh, beneath and many scholars believe that it is beneath this gate. Uh, but that's the eastern gate of the gate beautiful. Now it's Jesus. So now we're looking. That's actually on the Temple Mount today. That's one of the walls there. It's under uh, Islamic control today. Uh, Dome of the Rock's not pictured in this. It would be to the, to the left, to the south of that entrance right there. But as Jesus descends the Mount of Olives, he goes directly in through Likely the gate Beautiful, we believe. He could have gone in also through the Sheep Gate, which is on the north side. Either, either one was a possibility, and there's debate as to which. Both would make sense, go in as king, go in as lamb. But nevertheless, the main entrance where there was the gate Beautiful, and it comes directly from the Mount of Olives right into that gate. <clears throat> so Jesus goes into what would have been called the temple compound, a massive structure, had a massive outer court where only the Gentiles They couldn't go, they could only be in the outer court. And then you had the inner court, and you had also the temple building itself, which was majestic white marble, gold. But during Passover week, the lambs had to be inspected. All the lambs that were going to be sacrificed as Passover lambs, one lamb for a household, uh, they had to be inspected for any flaws or blemish. Remember what Peter wrote He was a lamb without spot or blemish. Peter's writing that because Peter understands that Passover lambs have to be without spot or blemish. So they would would be rejected as a sacrifice if any defects were found. Jesus, the Lamb of God, he also had to be inspected that week by men, by the religious leaders, by the priesthood, because the priesthood would also inspect the lambs. Now the people the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Herodians, uh, the religious leaders, they were all asking him questions throughout the week. All eyes were on Jesus. Everybody's eyes were fixed on him. Those that were worshiping him, Hosanna, Hosanna. Those that were like, we got to kill him. We've got we to make sure we silence him. Even Caiaphas said, this will be for the good of the nation, that we silence this man, that this man should die for all of Israel. Although he spoke prophetically in that sense, but nevertheless, Jesus was inspected. Uh, and they were wondering, is he really from God? <clears throat> One of the questions that, you know, they asked him, they, asked, they tried to trap him, and Jesus said, I'll answer your question if you answer me a question. The baptism of John, was it from God or from man? They were in a quandary, right? Well, if we say, if we say it's from God, then people say, why did you reject it? If we say it's from man, the people uh, count him as a prophet, and they, they'll stone us. So we don't know. So that was kind of one of the exchanges that Jesus had as they were always inspecting him, trying to find a flaw in him. Was he as holy as his followers believed he was, as the disciples believed he was? Now, Jesus, of course, is perfect. None of the religious leaders could trap him. You know, they, they, it, it's really foolish to try and argue with the intellect of God or try and find a flaw in God, but they tried. Their attempts to find flaws unwittingly result in his spotless inspection. They unwittingly prove that he was spotless. All the time, by the time you get to even Pilate and Herod, they can't find any fault in him. Nobody can. But he's also there to inspect them to inspect Israel, to inspect Jerusalem. He is the lamb, but he's also the high priest, and he's also the coming judge. And he exercises a little bit of his high priest and future judge role in just a small measure because he's also there to inspect them. He notes the condition of the temple, the heart of the people, and the fruitless state The nation, you've probably read some of these verses, they all take place in Passover week. A lot of people may not know. For one, he went directly into the temple and he looked around the temple and he looked around. You know what he saw? Money changers turning the temple into a place of business. Also, in Matthew 21, there he also one morning comes back towards Jerusalem and he sees a fig tree. And he said, I'd like a fig. There was no fruit on the tree. He found nothing but leaves. He observed, this tree has nothing but leaves. You never impress God with just branches. And then in Matthew 23, he weeps over the city, probably standing above the city looking down, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often I wanted to gather your children together. As a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. This verse could be said of America, brother and sister. Uh, You could say the same thing. America, America, how I long to gather you, but you are not willing. You want your money, your stuff, your careers, your entertainment. How long I want to give you peace, and you want to find it in prescriptions and doctors and alcohol and all these other things. Materialism. But Jesus said Jerusalem is the same way. They did not want the deliverance that God wanted to bring. So he was inspecting them. Then we have his rebukes. <clears throat> this is a, a scale model of the temple. If you go to Jerusalem, uh, and we've taken two teams now, um, if you're there in Jerusalem, they have a scale model made out of the Jerusalem limestone and everything, and this is, the, this is actually the model there Um, and it's amazing how massive the temple is compared to the city landscape and the walls around Jerusalem. But some of Jesus' rebukes came as he was in the temple, as people were trying to trap him, as the religious leaders were trying to trap him. He would respond back with his rebuke of their efforts, but he also had rebukes for the heart of the people, the heart of the nation. And his own inspection of those inspecting him comes with a series of rebukes. So as he inspects those that are inspecting him, he responds with a series of rebukes which are recorded in the Scriptures. His rebukes should warrant repentance. If Jesus rebukes you and I, it should cause us to say, you're right, Lord, have mercy on me. But a lot of times people are like, I don't know to listen to that. Any God that would allow the coronavirus is no God of mine. You heard people say stuff like that? As if that can actually budge God. Instead, say, Lord, have mercy on us. But the rebukes of Jesus should have warranted repentance, but in most cases, it caused further resistance. The priests were even more adamant that he must be crucified. Further resistance to their only hope. America, for decades now, had further resistance to the only hope we actually have. And in each case, Jesus gives unflinching assessments or condemnation of the heart of the nation, the heart of Israel at that time. When he looked around and he saw the money changers, he said, you've made it a den of thieves. That's quite a rebuke, isn't it? Instead of a place of holy worship, he said this is a place of thievery, deceit. He said to the fig tree, poor fig tree, <laughs> because it was, you was using an illustration, but it really was a real tree. It withered and died immediately. He said, let no fruit grow on you ever again. He said to Jerusalem, as he wept over the city, he goes, you're the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent. This is going all the way back to men like Isaiah, and Jeremiah, and even in the future, they would do the same thing like Stephen and run the same city. Of course, Jesus himself, by the end of the week, would be the prophet of God, crucified. Uh, and he says to the Pharisees, Woe to you, hypocrites! Outwardly you appear righteous. Isn't that sad that even today we have pastors and ministers that outwardly appear righteous? He said, But inside you're full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Jesus' most scathing rebukes, were for religious people that weren't actually walking in the humility that God asked us to. None of us are perfect, but, but Jesus is saying, Look, these guys are really greedy, desiring power, which is why they wanted to silence him. So we have his rebukes. We might not like this kind of truth, but we need this level of truth. It reveals... Our condition of sin. I'm glad Jesus, many years ago in 1995, revealed to me, "You are a sinner in sin," and I, instead of re- resisting, said, "How dare you judge me?" Said, "You're right. Have mercy upon me." But by the way, these these rebukes of Jerusalem two thousand years ago would be the same not just for America, but cities all over the world. Be the same for. Madrid, it'd be the same for Rome, it'd be the same for London, same for Tokyo, Hong Kong, you name it. As we move through this week, take a look at another aspect of Jesus' statements during that week, his prophecies. Later that same week, Jesus also gave prophecies related to the temple, Jerusalem as a city, Israel as a nation, And, in fact, the end of the age. Also called in Scripture, the last days. We've never been closer to the last days than right now. We've never been closer than here at 1030, Sunday, Palm Sunday, the 5th. We've never been closer to the last of the last days than right now. And if you're visiting, I give the hawking analogy, we're in the third period. Because hockey has three periods. We're in the third period. We've been in the third period since the day of Pentecost, which was about 40 days after Jesus rose from the dead, when Peter stood up and says, brothers and, you know, my brethren, these are the last days. So we're in the latter minutes. We're in the two-minute warning for a football analogy. We're in the two-minute warning. But the last days, because there had already been 4,000 years of history in the world, and Jesus, you have 2,000 years since then. But what Jesus foretold there on the Mount of Olives, this is actually the north end of the Mount of Olives. The, other, the south end has all those tombstones on. This is the north end, and the bottom of the, of the mountain is the Garden of Gethsemane to the left, if you're looking at the, if you're looking at the screen. But um, as Jesus foretold the future, much of it reads like today's headlines. But as he sat there on the Mount of Olives, looking down at the glorious temple, that massive structure a couple, couple uh, slides back, um, I believe the, the temple, Herod's temple, was easily one of the greatest wonders of the ancient world. No question in my mind. The impetus of Jesus teaching the disciples about the end of the age was that they were marveling at the temple. They're sitting up there, I don't know if they're having lunch or what, but they're sitting there on the Mount of Olives. and the disciples said to Jesus, look at this magnificent structure. Even though they'd seen it many times, it was always jaw-dropping to them, no matter how many times they saw it. It's kind of like when I go to Washington, D.C., I grew up in the D.C. or I grew up in the D.C. Beltway, but when I go to the Capitol building, I'm still amazed at the structure. It's, it's beautiful. It's It's massive. It is, there's something about when, especially if you go to D.C. around the 4th of July, it doesn't matter how many times you've been there, you all of a sudden get a little patriotic, even if you're not patriotic. And that was what happened in Passover week. The disciples are caught up in the moment, and it's not just that they're caught up in the moment. The temple is that magnificent. It was awe-inspiring. It was like the First time I went to New York City, I had to go, I got on the subway, I had to go down and look up at the Twin Towers, which are no longer there. And I stood at the bottom of them and looked up and said, these are amazing. Well, they were looking at the temple the same way. They're like, nothing we've ever seen compares to this, and Jesus says, it won't even be there soon. As a matter of fact, less than 40 years later, he said not, not one stone would be turned. The whole temple would be destroyed in Titus in 70 A.D., it, that happened. But the impetus of the whole teaching was them looking at the temple, and the fact that Jesus told us what would happen to the temple and what would happen to the city of Jerusalem is how we can know the rest of his prophecies are true. He said it would be leveled, and in fact it did. He proclaimed also in that same teaching called the Olivet Discourse, because it took place in the Mount of Olives, uh, that not only would the temple be destroyed, but many would come in his name and deceive many. They couldn't believe that. They're like, the only people that follow you are people that know and believe in you. Who would actually create a religion in your name? Well, now we have plenty of religions in Jesus' name, and they're false. Some of them don't even believe in hell. Some of them believe Jesus was an angel. Some believe he's Satan's brother. All these different things out there. He also said that there would be earthquakes in various places. When various, it actually means... uh, A lot of scholars believe it means not expected places. So you can, not only are we seeing earthquakes in the normal places, but they're cropping up in new places around the world. The whole world will become tectonic, not just the ring of fire. Pestilence, which is disease. Things like the coronavirus. And there will be fearful sights. Boy, people are in fear right now. Right out of the headlines. Jesus' prophecies there that week on the Mount of Olives. And he said... Ultimately, Israel will become the center of it all. By the way, COVID 19 will eventually fade, and all the attention will eventually go back to Israel. Eventually. And it will become the center of global conflict, where even the, the, the valley of Harmageddon or Armageddon will become the center of a global conflict. All of this Jesus speaks of in the Olivet Discourse during these prophecies. Then we have his council. He's the wonderful counselor, so he gives counsel to those that are willing to listen. If you're online, are you listening to his counselor are you listening to the New York Times or Fortune magazine or yourself? Now, in the face of the reality of Jesus' inspections, he's already inspected every one of us. If you're listening online, Jesus has already inspected you, whether you know it or not. He knows everything you've ever said, ever thought, and even what you're thinking about what I'm saying right now. He knows every. you've already been inspected. Uh, he's already rebuked all of our sin and all of our rebellion in which we're all guilty and yet he's still calling us by grace. If anyone willing to come, let him come, Jesus said. And in fact, the judgment of God will fall upon all the nations. All the na- no one will escape that continues to resist. At the end of the age, all those that reject Christ will be judged by Christ. So he gives counsel to those that are saying, I, I, I don't want the judgment, how do I receive your mercy? He gives counsel to those that it will wisely say, Lord, I'm going to follow you, I'm going to receive your grace. And the question for us as believers, if you're born again, how are we to live? That's the question the disciples had. How are we supposed to live? The, the apostle Peter asked the same question, 2 Peter 3.11. Uh, based on the surety of Christ's return, um, Peter said, Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, that means the whole world, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? God has called us as Christians, as believers, to live lives that are holy. That's only possible, understanding this, that there's nothing holy in us, so it's only possible with the help of the Holy Spirit. We cannot live holy apart from the Spirit of God and the grace of God. We need God's grace. We need the help of His Spirit residing in us. That's why Jesus said, I'm going to send you the Helper. It's one of the names of the Holy Spirit. I'm going to send you the Helper uh, because we cannot and we will not be able to live as Jesus commanded us without His help. But it starts in the heart. We have to say, Lord, I'm going to receive your counsel. I'm going to obey your counsel. I'm going to surrender and believe in Jesus. But if we've come to that place of repentance and we've turned to Christ, then here's the counsel that he gives. These are the counsels that he gave that very week. He said, uh, I was hungry and thirsty, and you gave me drinks. So he said, I want you to be serving and loving people, even people that don't love you back. It goes back to what he taught in the Beatitudes earlier in his ministry. But this is a good time. We're going to have time in this season of this virus to give to people who are hungry, to give to people that have need, not just their physical need, but to give them the gospel which they really need. Uh, take heed to yourselves, lest you be weighed down with the carousing, and drunkenness, and the cares of this life. Hey, what? If everything returns back to normal, then I can get back to my own normal life and do my own thing. And Jesus, that might be the world's philosophy, but that's not Peter, that's not you, James, John, or those of us that have, that have come to Christ and know the Lord. I want you to not carried away by the busyness of the world. Uh, Mark 13, 33 and 35, he says, take heed, watch and pray, become people of prayer. You don't know when he's coming. Therefore, you don't know when the master of the house, you know, Jesus could return tonight or two weeks from now or two years from now. We have to be ready, walking by faith and not by sight. Here's the counsel of Jesus, to abide in him, to be ready, to be watching, to be loving, and serving others. That's his counsel. And we have his communion. Two, two left. We're at number six here. His communion, which we're going to partake of communion together in just a few minutes. Now after Jesus had concluded uh, his prophetic teaching of the end of days and his counsel to those that were his followers to stand firm, to be ready for his return, to be vigilant, to be walking in the power of the Holy Spirit, to be serving and loving people. After he had given that counsel, the eyes of the disciples are on him. What's next? What's he going to do? And he turns his full attention, he turns his full attention now to the cross. For the remainder of the week, his total focus, and there's not much time left in the week at this point, his total attention is the cross and his imminent death which the disciples still are not expecting. Even though he's told them numerous times that he's going to be betrayed by the priest, he's going to be scourged, he's going to be killed, he's going to rise in three days. He's told them this numerous times, and yet it has gone over their head. They still have no idea that he's come this week to be the Passover lamb. It was also time for the fulfillment of the Passover, the taking of the Passover meal. And in this meal... Jesus was to unveil himself as the lamp, as the very bread and the very wine of the Passover. This too would escape their understanding and probably it would have been our it would escape us too by the way if we'd have been there. But it would escape their understanding until after the resurrection. But he gathers them in what was called the upper room. It was a room that was reserved by one of his followers, and so the upper room was prepared to have the Passover meal, and he gathers them there in love and compassion for them. To gather them. And they had taken Passover meals, being Jewish men, many times in their life, but this one was going to be vastly different. This Passover meal is a communion of God with redeemed men. It's not just the observation under the law. This is Jesus Emmanuel, with his redeemed disciples, except for one, Judas, of course, who did not believe in Jesus and, in fact, would betray him in the garden just after this meal. But that same communion is what Jesus desires with you and me. Did you know that? He wants to be the bread of life in your life and in my life, to have that same communion with us. And as he serves them that night, he even washed their feet, showing them what the heart of God really looks like. Even wash their feet. When he's about to go to the cross, again, they still don't even know that, he's there washing their feet. And he reveals to them at that time that this whole meal, yes, it's about the Passover in Egypt. Yes, it will forever be about the deliverance out of Egypt from under the hand of Pharaoh. But Jesus says, but that's not where the story ends. The greater fulfillment is that Lamb's blood that was on the doorpost was always me. And always me. That it was pointing to his sacrifice, that he is the Lamb. His body and blood are essential. And he sat down with the twelve and he said, with fervent desire, I desire to eat this with you. And then he said, this blood is the blood of the what? New covenant. Because the old covenant was the Mosaic law. The new covenant was that the blood of Christ would be shed abroad in our hearts, and we'd be saved by grace if we were willing to turn and look to Christ, then the new covenant, we'd not live under the legal requirements of the law, but we live by the power of the Holy Spirit and the work of grace in our life. And he revealed it in communion that night, although they still didn't get it, that led to the final steps of that week. And that was his sacrifice. After the meal... The meal ends, they sing a hymn, and he heads down to the Garden of Gethsemane, out of Jerusalem, down into the Kidron Valley, down to the Garden of Gethsemane. And the Garden of Gethsemane was an olive press. And olives are pressed under tremendous, big, huge millstones. They press the olives with tremendous pounds per square inch pressure to squeeze the olives out. And, of course, Jesus is there under the pressure of the entire world and the history of all the sins of humanity are pressing down on him. The weight of the cross, the weight of the world, literally, literally, not figuratively, literally weighing down on Jesus. And his blood already started to flow in the garden. It said he sweat drops of blood. Already his blood was flowing Before the cross, I think this is noteworthy, that his blood was flowing before the cross. He was already fully bound to the cross before being nailed to the cross. He was already fully bound to the cross before being nailed to the cross. But out of love for God, Jesus rises from prayer. Out of the garden, he goes willingly to the cross of Calvary. But nobody took Jesus' life. Understand if you're watching online, nobody took Jesus' life in a sense. Yes, real men did it, and they'll pay for it if they never turn to him. But some of the men that killed Jesus did. After they killed him, said, one of the centurions goes, truly this is the Son of God. Why, why do I say that in a sense, no man took his life? Well, Jesus laid it down willingly. Willingly he laid it down. He said, Father, not my will, but yours be done. And he said in John chapter 10, long before the cross, he said, I lay my life down. No one takes it from me. He even said in the garden, if I want, I can call 10,000 angels and smoke all of you. He didn't say those last parts, but you know, you get the idea. I have the power to lay it down, and I have the power to raise it up. But he leaves the garden, In the middle of the night, he has a kangaroo court led by Caiaphas, the priest, and the Sanhedrin. He's condemned to death because he says he's sent from God. And by 9 a.m., by 9 a.m., Jesus is on the cross. By 9 a.m., Roman soldiers have nailed him to a cross. And for the next six hours, he'll be on the cross. Bleeding, suffering, people spitting on him, mocking him. Years earlier, he had said in his own, in his own hometown of Nazareth, he said uh, that um, you, will say, you will surely say this proverb, physician, heal yourself. Well, they would say on the cross, you saved others, why don't you save yourself? Jesus said long before we the cross, you'll surely say this to me someday. Save yourself. And in fact, People would say that. The religious leaders, they scoff. The priests would gather. Hey, you saved everybody else. You healed people. You raised people from the dead. Get off the cross, and then we'll believe in you. But if Jesus got off the cross, there is no salvation. He had to endure that we could be saved. So there he is on the cross. We're going to pick this up next Sunday when we celebrate the resur- resurrection. We're going to pick it up around 12 noon because that's when things go dark. And we're going to go from darkness to an empty tomb next Sunday. But the question for all of us as we come to an end, we're going to take the Lord's Supper together, is what do we now do with Jesus' sacrifice and his Passover mission? What do we do with it? Just have head knowledge about it? Just understand the stories that we can kind of list it out in facts? Well, if you're watching online, there's only three responses you can have. There's only three responses. You can reject it and say, I still don't believe this. I still believe there is no God or I still believe in some other thing or I still believe all roads lead to heaven or whatever. You can reject the message. You can receive it and say, today I'm putting my faith and trust in Christ as my Lord and Savior. Or thirdly, if you're already saved like I am and presumably most of you are, you can renew your commitment to it. Renew your commitment to it. Amen? That, that's the only three responses. Reject it, receive it, or renew our commitment to it. There's no other response that we can have. I'm going to invite Tawad and the team back up, and I'm going to just pray. And if, if you're watching online, and you say, I didn't, I didn't know all that. I kind of thought that, that uh, somebody made this stuff up or that... Uh, I." Jesus is no different than any other prophet or I didn't know, but something about what you said from the scriptures, the Holy Spirit convinced me that I am a sinner. I don't want to be like Jerusalem at the time and just reject and resist. I want to receive. I'm going to pray with you. Take a moment to if you want to ask Jesus into your heart and be your Lord and Savior and to cleanse you from sin. Just bow your head wherever you may be and Pray along with me. Jesus, thank you for coming. Thank you for coming 2,000 years ago this Passover week to be my Passover lamb. Lord, I admit, I don't resist it. I admit that I am a sinner, that I've rebelled or, or in ignorance resisted the gospel. But Lord, I believe that you and you alone are the way, the truth, and life. You're the only way that my sins can be forgiven, that I can escape. The certainty of hell and, Lord, the the certainty of death, both physically and the soul, Lord. And so I ask that you would cleanse me, forgive me, wash me, Write, write my name in your land's book of life. For I've decided this day to follow you, Jesus. In your name I pray. Amen.